6 is our text for tonight, and the message is entitled, Let Us Return to the Lord. Uh, Hosea is really the case study of a rebellious people uh, and God's relentless love in response to those rebellious people, along with the call to repent. You remember I've given you a little bit of context as we've gone along. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he ministered for about 40 years in what was then the northern kingdom of Israel. And he began along about the 8th century B.C. at a time when Israel had divided into two kingdoms. Idolatry, spiritual failure, moral corruption were everywhere. But yet God's love shines through the darkness of that idolatry. And the message is about judgment, but it's also about hope. There's some symbols in this book that are important to identify. One is the main symbol of the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, uh, which is a picture of God's relationship with his people and how God uh, rebuked them and called them to return to him. The, the marriage pointed to how God relates to people, how God loves his people. And the message is that God was offended by their unfaithfulness, just like God is offended by our sin and our disobedience. The Messiah is the deliverer. Jesus would come and keep the law and the covenant perfectly. So from the New Testament perspective, we would see Jesus Christ as the husband, the bridegroom, who came to rescue or to deliver his wife, the church, we, his people. Now, in chapter 5, the emphasis was on how the spiritual and the political leaders were not taking the people in a godly direction, but rather they were pulling people away from God and deep into sin. Both of those groups of leaders led the people away from truth and mercy and the knowledge of God. So what God did was he gave them a warning. He said, because of your sin, there's going to be judgment that's coming. There's a day of trouble and a day of rebuke that is going to take place. And God issued that warning because he wanted the people to know how they could come back and renew their relationship with him. And in doing so, they were to acknowledge their offense, seek the face of God, and earnestly uh, follow after him and love him as they were intended to do. Now, by the time we come to Hosea chapter 6, spiritually the situation was one of despair. Idolatry was everywhere. Uh, the judgment of God was on the way. But God is bringing what amounts to a final warning in a sense. So Hosea speaks and then God speaks. And I want to read this in parts, beginning in verse 1. We'll read these first two verses. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Now remember what God told Hosea his assignment was. He was to go and marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him, and again, that marriage was a reflection of God's relationship with Israel. There's a parallel to this over in Ezekiel chapter 23 in verse 2 and following where he says, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. 
They played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. Ohalah was the name of the elder, and Ohalaba was the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Ohalah is Samaria, and Ohalabah is Jerusalem. Remember, this would have been Samaria as the northern kingdom, and then uh, Jerusalem as the southern kingdom. So Hosea does what God tells him to do, which is just really uh, stressful, had to have been for him. And he marries this woman. She gives birth to three children. Uh, Some time passes. She leaves him. He finds her again, continually pursuing her in a slave market. He buys her back, and he continues to be faithful just as God is faithful to his people. So the sins of idolatry and immorality and spiritual adultery were repulsive to God, and he said that he was going to judge them. Back in chapter 5 and verse 14, he speaks of being like a lion and tearing them apart. Now, about two to three decades after Hosea started to minister uh, to the people, Assyria came and invaded Israel and essentially destroyed it. Second Kings 17 and verse 18 says, The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That's a picture of total destruction. But God made a covenant with them, and God is always faithful to his covenants. God always keeps his promises. So the first truth I want you to see in Hosea 6 tonight in a two-part message with a conclusion to follow, is that the call is to turn back to God in repentance. The call is to turn back to God in repentance. Now, we already read the first two verses. Let's pick back up in verse 3. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain, to the earth. So what's Hosea doing? He's making a plea for the people who had strayed far from God in their sin to come back to God. And he prayed with the right heart in response to the chastening hand of God. So I think what I see here is a prayer that trusts the love of God. And he gives us three reasons to turn to God all of these based on the faithfulness of God. Reason number one to turn back to God in repentance is for restoration. He makes this point in verse one. Sin is rebellion. Sin is against God. It represents unfaithfulness to God. It's the equivalent of breaking a holy covenant. If you think about this in terms of a um, family relationship, for example, An unfaithful spouse can't walk out and then just come back out of nowhere years later and expect there to be no impact from their action. There has to be some measure, even with forgiveness, of restoration, healing, and time. Now, I think in part, uh, Hosea's plea is pointing even beyond the immediate generation. The destruction had not yet happened But Hosea knew what was on the way because God had said what he was going to do. Hosea knew God's heart. You see, God's heart is pained by our sin. 
Sin is spiritual adultery. God desires to restore all things. And the reason that there is hope in the midst of judgment is because of the faithfulness of God. He is torn, but he will heal. This is the same thing that God revealed to Moses in the covenant. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39 says, See now that I, even I, and he, and there is no God beside me, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So the prophet Isaiah knew God and he trusted his word. God would heal the people and they would discover his restoration if they would only turn to him. Now I think what's interesting is when we read a passage of scripture like this, we tend to put ourselves in the seat of the good guy. So when we read this with our eyes, we're going to think that we're Hosea in the story. But the reality is we've all been Gomer in the story, spiritually speaking. Our sins, they are many, but God's mercy is more. Reason number two to turn back to God in repentance is for eternal life. Look again in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, God alone is triumphant over death. Sin brings spiritual death and ultimately physical death. Even death cannot keep God from fulfilling his promises. Today, uh, death comes because of sin. Tomorrow will be gone. But on the third day, life comes again, and we will live forever in the presence of God. Now, if you know anything at all about New Testament Christianity, and you know even the basics of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will recognize a parallel here to Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Because even in the language that is used here, even though it's just a shadowing of what's to come, Uh, It parallels with what he would do for us. That Christ on the cross would be torn and stricken for our sake. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. And because of his victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave, we have victory. And friends, this is what the gospel is, that there is good news that we can be reconciled to God who gave us physical life and we can have spiritual life if we trust in what he's done on our behalf. Hosea 13 and verse 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. You see, the love of God and the power of God is stronger than anything that death brings. Repentance is turning to God in order to know God and to fellowship with him. So God has shown us his faithfulness in Christ. And when Paul wrote that Christ rose on the third day according to the scripture, he referred to this very passage. Reason number three to turn back to God in repentance is to know God. Look again at verse three. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come back to take us, or he come to take us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. 
Now, this idea of the knowledge of, of the Lord in Hebrew had two aspects to it. It could mean to know because of observing and reflecting, like the information of knowing, or it could mean to know on an experiencing level. So it is personalized and internalized knowledge. And what the prophet was saying was that Israel didn't have that kind of knowledge of God. They had religious knowledge, they had external knowledge, but they didn't have a personal relationship with God. And that's why the charge was given back in chapter 4 and verse 1. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. They knew about God. Many of them even went through the motions, but they were mixing the worship of God with false worship and caught up in idolatry. And the irony of this is that God was willing to form a covenant with people who did not know him. This is how far they had gone. God remained faithful, though. He never abandoned them. He blessed them. And Hosea 2 and verse 20 says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It says he comes to us like rain, the latter and the former. Farmers would wait on the rain with great anticipation. And God answers, and just as we wait on him, and he comes to us. So I'd say to you this evening, God is always there. It is worth pursuing him because he loves and he blesses. And then the second part of this is that to turn back to God in repentance includes turning away from sin. Verses 4 to 6. Now we're going to get a little bit more specific here. After Hosea finished his plea for repentance and his desire for the people to turn to God, God comes into the picture and addresses the people. You cannot put on righteousness without putting off sin. In Mission in Christ's Way, Leslie Newbingen, who was a longtime missionary to India, wrote this about the true meaning of repentance. He said, I remember once visiting a village in the Madras diocese. There was no road into the village. You reached it by crossing a river, and you could do this either on the south side of the village or on the north. The congregation had decided that I would come by the southern route, and they had prepared a welcome such as only an Indian village can prepare. There was music and fireworks and garlands and fruit, everything you can imagine. Unfortunately, I entered the village at the north end and only found a few goats and chickens. Crisis. I had to disappear while word was sent to the assembled congregation and the entire village did a sort of U-turn so as to face the other way, and then I duly reappeared. And then he writes this. This is what metanoia means, metanoia being the word for repentance. Uh, the trans one translation gives a misleading impression by translating it only as turn away from your sins. That might make it look like a traditional call for moral reformation, but he says that's not all of the point. Uh, there's nothing about sins in the text. The point is, the reign of God has drawn near, but you can't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You're expecting the wrong thing. What you think is God isn't God at all. And you have to be, as Paul says, transformed by the renewing of your mind 
so that the reign of God will not be totally hidden from you. So yes, it is a turning away from sin, but it's a turning to God. There's a repentance of it that is putting off the old and putting on the new. So what is it that we're repenting of? Well, according to verse 4, we're repenting of superficial faithfulness. Verse 4 says, O Ephraim, what shall I uh, do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. See, the situation was becoming hopeless because they were ignoring God. The questions that God asks here are rhetorical because God knew full well what he was going to do. But the point is, their faithfulness to God was like a morning cloud or like dew. It didn't last long. There's no commitment. There's no loyalty. There's no sacrifice. Their love was self-serving. It was selfish. It was surface. And the word faithfulness also means love. The Bible translated it, it translates it at times as steadfastness or loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. Again, we always go back to God's covenant faithfulness as our rule. And when God promised David a son who would have an everlasting kingdom based on that steadfast love, he protected David's line for over a thousand years in order to bring it to pass. So what I would say to you is that we shouldn't love God like we love a part-time job. There ought to be a full-time commitment. There ought to be a dedication to the Lord. And we need to repent if that's our attitude. And then according to verse 5, we should repent of apathy. He says in verse 5, Therefore I've hewn them by my prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that go forth. Because the people didn't have a genuine love of and knowledge for God, what did God do? God sent them prophets to speak words to them. And like sheep, God gathered them time and time again. He sent judgments as, a, as visible as the light because he didn't want anybody to miss them. So could it be that God is speaking to us through his word about a superficial commitment or about an apathetic attitude and he's calling us to come back to him and to listen to his word that comes to us and is as visible as the light so that we can see and hear what God wants us to see and hear. And then according to verse 6, we need to repent of religiosity without genuine faith. He says in verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, that's a mouthful in verse 6, and here was the, the flip side of this. These were very religious people, but yet they weren't doing what was right in the sight of God. They would go through the motions, and they would offer burnt sacrifices, which would have required an entire animal to sacrifice. It, it wasn't cheap. It was costly. But their worship was empty. And it's interesting, uh, and we'll get into this in a, in a later message, but in chapter 7 and verse 8, 
God compares them to a cake that is unturned. That's an odd illustration, but in the Middle East, people would often bake uh, circular cakes that would look sort of like a thick pancake, and they would be cooked on hot stones, and the importance was to flip the cake at the right time. And if you forgot to turn the cake, you would end up with one side that was burnt and the other side that was doughy and raw. And that was exactly Israel. Their external religious zeal was overdone. They offered all kinds of sacrifices. They would take care of their priests. But on the other side, they were uncooked and undone without a true knowledge of God and without a genuine love for God. And what was God looking for? God was looking for consecrated hearts. He was looking for genuine devotion. And I want you to know that genuine devotion and a consecrated heart is going to be far more costly in your life than a burnt offering or just going through the motions. Now I pick back up reading in verse 7 of chapter 6. But like men, they transgressed the covenant, and there they dealt treacherously with me. This is God speaking first person. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie and wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim, Israel's defiled. Also, old Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. So God's bringing his argument to a summary and he's talking about the ugliness of their sin and what is to come so here's the concluding point in light of the holiness of god and our sin and the consequences we know come from sin and the judgment that will to, that is to follow the call to us is for us to return to the lord let us return to the Lord. Now, this may be an initial turning to the God that created you when you receive the gospel and you trust in Jesus Christ by faith and you become a disciple of Christ, you become a Christian. Or it could be when you've gotten off track, your life is not where it needs to be spiritually, and God is patient, He loves you, He's watching over your life, and He's bringing you back to Him along the way. I close with this and in a piece entitled Whatever Became of Repentance. Uh, Mark Galley wrote this. He said on October 31st, 1517, uh, which is known now as not what you thought it was known as, it's known as Reformation Day. Um, Martin Luther is said to have posted 95 theses or the disputation on the power of indulgences on the door of All Saints Church. The professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg was proposing an academic debate about indulgences, the practice of doing good works or offering money to try to remove punishment for sin, which was a part of the church at that time. Luther was disturbed by how many indulgences encouraged people to pay for their forgiveness rather than to repent. Instead, Luther argued... Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. 
That is as hard to swallow today as it was then. We are not the first to notice how absent the theme of repentance is today. Carl Menninger in his book, Whatever Became of Sin, could have easily included a sequel, Whatever Became of Repentance. Galley notes that repentance is unpopular because we are addicted to, to justifying our own actions and pointing out the evil in others. And then he says this, if I really looked at my own self-centeredness and pride, I'd have to admit that I'm also a hypocrite and a moral failure. Well, yes, aren't we all? That's precisely why Jesus came, to save the world from itself and to save us from ourselves. That's why the word repentance is usually connected to the phrase good news, as Mark highlights in his summary of Jesus' early preaching. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the good news. That's the heart of the teaching about Christ and how we can come back to God in faith. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Hosea. This is a difficult illustration. Um, we uh, have struggled through it in these weeks. Uh, it is overwhelming to think about the depths of your love in light of the awfulness of sin. But we thank you that you're the God of grace. I'm grateful that you were willing to send your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And that he lived a perfect life doing what nobody else could do. That he willingly, having fulfilled the law, gave his life for us on the cross. And he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. And I pray that each of us would repent and believe the good news. And that because of that, we would be restored to you and that uh, we would not just repent at the outset of our Christian life, which is essential, but that we would live a life of repentance, mindful of how sin affects our relationship with you along the way. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us and for your love that is truly everlasting. And I pray your blessings on each person that's here and each person that's listening to this message, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.